This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Our guest consists of experts like the world's leading authority on long-term economic growth, Bob Gordon. We will continue to see jobs created rather than destroyed. Former chair of the Federal Reserve, Janet Yellen. I mean, I don't think either of us ever expected that we would live through a financial crisis. Or even the head of the Digital Indian Foundation, Arvind Gupta. The reason that people are talking about India is massive digitization and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years. Enjoy this week's show. Welcome back to Behind the Markets here on Sirius XM 132. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global Head of Research at Wisdom Tree. For the next half hour, we'll be talking to uh, Randy Parrish, focusing on the high yield bond market. We just talked about what's going on in the economy. And uh, for sure, the high yield credit markets are one of the big areas of focus. So it's lucky to have Randy, uh, who does a lot of the high yield research at Voya. Voya uh, does some advice for the Wisdom Tree ETFs. We're not going to talk about ETFs or the, or, or our particular ETFs, I should say. Um, but, uh, just talk about the credit markets generally. Randy, thank you so much for joining us on the program today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Uh, so, you know, high yield has been in some ways, uh, you know, they they have the risk. And as the market shuts down, the economy shuts down, um, sort of a focal point for people. Maybe before we get into the market itself, give our, give our listeners a little bit of background about yourself and Voya, how, sort of how you came there, what you focus on, and, and a little bit about Voya's team there. Sure. So um, so just my background briefly, I, I, I noticed you had uh, Tom Barkin on who who was uh, here in Atlanta with the uh, with the Atlanta Fed for a while. Um, the Voya fixed income business is also in Atlanta, so I do appreciate the Atlanta focus on today's show. Nice. Um, I have been uh, I've been, gosh, in uh, in credit markets for you know roughly thirty years, and and the high yield market for about twenty. Um, so Voya has a full full fixed income platform here in Atlanta. Um, you know all phases of the credit markets. Um, and as you said, it's it's been a really interesting place to be as as we've gone through the, I, I would say the pandemic, but really the shutdown, right? That that's really what, um, from a credit standpoint, that's what weighs the most on on the markets. Of you know, business goes away, right? We've never really been through this episode of of shutting down intentionally shutting down our economy and then having to decide how do we reopen and how do we get things going again. Yeah, I mean, I think that was one of the, the key questions I was asking uh, Barkin. It was like, how much is permanent? Like, where, where, what do we think is is coming off, and and how do we judge those? And you got to look at those on a. Uh, he's looking at a sort of macro, highest level macro, and then you're trying to make investments based on all that. How do you, how how do you think about the the risk in those in that high yield instruments, which already had some risk, but now have this additional uncertainty involved? You know, uncertainty is the key word. Right. It, it's it's something none of us have ever been through. Um, we sort of break things down into the knowns and the unknowns. You know, what, what do we know? We know we've done significant damage. Right. We um, for, for a reason. But but we know we've done significant damage. Uh, now we know that reopening has begun. But what we don't know is what will be the pace of that reopening, um, which is, you know, in part medically dependent. Um, and also, and, and I know Tom made this point in, in the prior segment of what will be the pace of reengagement of consumers? And, and that's really a fear question, 
right, of yeah. how quickly do people come back and, you know, and, and re-engage and get out and go shopping or get on an airplane or all of those things. So that that's sort of the, the demand side of things. But the other, um, you know, to, to Professor Siegel's comment earlier is companies are going to be operating in, in a different environment. And it may be that the old business model isn't profitable anymore. You know, the the example that we often use is restaurants. If you can only seat half your tables in a restaurant, can you actually make money with that business model? Um, you probably can't, at least not charging what you were charging before. So, so there's going to be a lot of change, I think, in terms of business models. Um, and there are also going to be a lot of companies that simply can't you know, can't come out the other end of this being um, being profitable or existing the way they did. So I think there's um, a lot of damage to to corporate debt markets. Um, you know, we're already seeing it. We're seeing default rates tick up. Um, but I think that's going to go on for an extended period of time as as we go through this shakeout. Now, if, if we go, if we try to go, you know, there's a lot we can talk about in, on the details. But when you think about where the high yield category is today. And valuations, you know, a lot of people, the equity markets have have bounced back in a major way. Uh, and sort of some people worry about, in some ways, coming too far too fast, some of the valuations. Where do you think the high yield bond markets are today, the spreads versus history, how you guys view them at a very big macro level? Are they appropriate? Uh, maybe, you know, anything's appropriate. But what what do you think is the, the current opportunity in the high yield space? Sure. Yeah, um, you know it's interesting. High yield spreads before um, before we recognized what what was coming with the virus were somewhere in the three hundred basis points, three percent, you know, more than Treasuries. Um, got as wide in March as eleven hundred over. So you know what typically would qualify as distress levels. Um, we're now somewhere around seven hundred. So we retraced about half of that widening. It's interesting if you compare that to both investment grade corporates and to equities. So, you know, think high yield is in the middle of those two. Um, investment grade corporates and, and equities have both retraced more than 60% of, of their sell-off. So high yield has actually lagged on, on the way back. Um, and we do think there's some opportunity within high yield. You know, I think historically, if you, um, if you bought, uh, if you bought high yield around these levels, around 700 or, or 800 off, um, you would generate attractive returns over time. And, and so I think that's, you know, that still holds true. Um, but I do think given the uncertainty and, and, you know, the hit to the economy and the damage that we're, we're going to see from a credit standpoint, really zeroing in on specific sectors and names and, and issuers and opportunities is critically important in this environment. It's, it's not going to be, you know, buy everything. It's all going to come out the same. I, I think, the idiosyncratic nature of, of high yield is really going to show through in this cycle. This is where the sort of you can't just buy the, the quote unquote dumb index. You got to buy a, somebody who can who can piece it together a little bit smarter is uh, is where you're going with that. Exactly. And, and that may mean, you know, that may mean higher quality. So you buy, you know, you, you're more willing to buy a double B bond than a triple C bond. Um, but it also depends on business model. Right. Some some businesses are going to be much more resilient going through this cycle. I mean, it's you know, it's not a stretch to say the you know, the, the grocery store is going to hold up um, presumably a whole lot better than the cruise line is in the near term. I right? just just as sort of extreme examples. 
Um, and, and so I think really understanding the Fed's talked a lot about, you know, the idea of, of liquidity versus solvency issues. And, and you know, Fed, Fed can help solve liquidity issues, maybe not solvency issues. And as a high yield investor, we really have to think about those two things differently, because if, if the Fed's going to flood the system with liquidity, then liquidity isn't going to bankrupt companies. But if the model isn't sustainable or the cost structure isn't sustainable, then you can still have a solvency issue that that can do a company in. So I want to sort of drill into one of the points, and so you have a unique um, sort of purview on this kind of question being, and, and also just sort of with your comments that you need to be smart about what bonds you're picking in the high yield space. I mean, everybody sort of standard narrative has always been, you need active managers in fixed income, you know, and, and so I, you know, personal bias, we've been doing a little bit more factor-based work in, in fixed income. But w- when you think about the ETF market itself for high yield bonds and, and you manage both, you know, traditional active strategies and sort of ETFs with, with us, what do you think is a distinction, you know, in terms of the ETF market for high yield categories? You know, is it the liquidity of the the bonds? Maybe any sort of commentary on, you know, you, the sort of standard narrative. You you shouldn't really go towards ETFs for for high yield. Yeah, so I think the, you know, it, it the active passive question is is always a debate. Um, fixed income, frankly, is harder to do on a passive basis. Um, just given market constructs. But I do think the further you go down in credit, the more the more active management makes sense. And, and clearly I'm, you know, I'm biased in that given where I sit. But um, but I, I do think that's true. And that's because you, you think about buying a bond at par, right? You have potentially 10 points of upside and 100 points of downside. The most important thing you can you can do is protect on the downside. Whereas if you contrast that to equities, you have unlimited upside as well as unlimited downside. Um, so I do think that that really makes active management and that um, sort of subjective judgment more important. Now, it's not to say that that some strategies that aren't truly active can't accomplish the same thing. And, and to your point about factor-based investing, right, a lot of these factor-based strategies are geared toward um, that same idea of let me cut off that left side tail of, of downside risk and, and and try to profit from the rest of the market. So I, I don't think those two things are as far apart, you know, true, true active versus factor based. I don't think that's as far apart as true active versus true passive. We're talking with Randy Parrish, the head of credit at Voya Investment Management, uh, sort of his view on what's happening in the high yield markets. And what about the sort of on, on liquidity side? I mean, any talk about how the bonds have been trading and just how that works in sort of the more, you know, in the ETF form? Sure. Um, so what, what we've seen is, interestingly, you know, I get a lot of questions about liquidity from clients. Interestingly, we didn't see trading volumes go down, really, even at the peak of sort of the, the market dislocation, um, what we saw is the price of trading go up. And, and that, you know, measure it in bid-ask spread, however you want to view that. But the the cost of trading goes up in that environment because the person on the other side of the trade um, is, you know, is less certain about where that price should be and where they can, can unload the other side of the trade. Um, so ETFs actually play a role in, um, I, and I think helping market liquidity. And, and I'll admit, when the ETFs 
first came into fixed income markets, I was pretty skeptical um, uh, about the ability of the ETF structure to deal with you know, limited liquidity of corporate bonds. But where I think the ETFs are actually beneficial to the market is that it's possible for risk to change hands via those ETF shares without the underlying bonds actually having to trade. So, you know, I, I don't know what the multiple is of ETF shares trading to underlying bonds, but, you know, it's it's some multiple. So you can trade multiples of risk versus the bonds that have to trade underneath. And I think that actually is beneficial because you can trade an ETF share, right, just as any other stock at a fairly low cost um, versus the the in times of stress when that bid ask on the underlying bonds can can become much wider. So I actually think the, the ETFs being in the market has helped because some of what it does is, is, you know, the ETF trades tend to attract shorter term, more more volatile money. Um, and that doesn't all have to flow through trading the underlying bonds. Yeah, no, it's interesting how people just uh, they expect that the, the ETF trading is going to sort of blow up the high yield bond market. It's sort of just interesting to hear um, sort of the sort of the other side and, and where and, and and have some of it's just working in some ways. Uh, so I, I hear that narrative a lot that, that they're going to create some some issues for this market. Um, when you think about what the Fed is doing, uh, you know, the, the Fed has come out and, and bought ETFs actually even for the when, as they're trying to support the markets, any commentary on what the Fed is doing to support the credit markets? I mean, have you ever think that they were going to come out uh, and be buying corporate bonds or, or trying to support the high yield market in any fashion? I, I guess I should have learned by now. Never say never on the Fed. Um, and, and if we'd looked at you know if we'd looked at the ECB, we probably shouldn't have been that surprised. Um, but I, I I was a little. A little skeptical that you know that, that the Fed would come this far down, and 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 in fairness, I think they've tried to discourage the idea that that they want to buy high yield bonds and that they want to help you know private equity backed companies and and things that um, probably would be would create some political backlash against the Fed. Um, so most of what they've tried to do is, is really stick to higher quality assets, things that they're not taking a lot of credit risk. But as you noted, um, you, through buying high yield ETFs and buying potentially bonds of fallen angels, um, they, they are they are beginning to step down the the credit spectrum. And um, I don't know how many how many actual bonds the Fed will end up buying. You know what what we found, not surprisingly, is once they started talking about buying bonds, um, bonds got bid up pretty quickly as as investors wanted to get in front of the Fed. Um, so as the primary and secondary market purchase facilities ramp up, I don't know what we'll ultimately see purchased. Um, I suspect there will be some. The initial purchases have been ETFs, and, and that's probably easier to do. Um, but again, the ETFs generally all trade at premiums now because everyone knows the Fed is potentially coming in and buying. Um, so my sense is they probably bought a little bit to say, no, we're serious, we'll do it. Um, but I wouldn't think we see them buy a lot uh, unless there is more dislocation and things are trading at a discount. That's really what they've they've said they want to get out of the market. Um, you know, but just having that backstop there, knowing it's there, knowing the Fed will will come in, I think is supportive to the market. You know, even in fallen angel space, 
we've seen issuers like uh, Ford, once it was downgraded, you know, printed an $8 billion high yield deal. Kraft Heinz, which was downgraded actually pre, pre-crisis, printed a 30-year bond, which you seldom see in, in the high yield market. So, so the appetite seems to be there. And, and I think the, the ability of companies to finance themselves, even outside the Fed, um, which most would rather do, because if you start to get into the Fed facilities, then you face limits on, you know, potentially on things like executive pay and share buybacks and uh, places companies would rather not go. That that fallen angels and sort of triple B risk is one of the the things you hear a lot of angst about. And and I, mean, and I wondered if the Fed coming out and saying if you were triple B before you get downgraded to this this junk category, you know there could be a measure of support. But how do you think about even before the pandemic, the, what the risk levels were in the triple B category? Is that something that keeps you guys uh, focused on? Where, where where are you guys thinking about that? Yeah, you know that's and to your point, pre pandemic that still got a lot of press back probably a year and a half ago, right? There's a lot of worry about um, about triple B debt. And we actually were reasonably sanguine at the time um, because we felt like those companies had the ability to maintain their ratings and, and they were being incented by the markets to do that. And, and so we saw some companies taking, taking positive steps to maintain ratings. Well, obviously, once the pandemic hits and you're, you're forced to shut down your business or your customers go away, um, then you're going to get a wave of downgrades and, and, and credit deterioration. And, and so we've seen it. It's mostly been in either in energy, which has been hit both you know, by the virus and the demand side and, and the Saudis and the Russians on the supply side, um, or in virus-impacted sec- sectors. So you've seen things like Occidental Petroleum, Macy's, Ford. Um, you know, a lot of large household names have, have gotten downgraded. And that's going to continue, right? It, it's until we're until we're out of this recession and really have recovered a lot of the lost ground economically, we're going to continue to see some uh, some downgrades. Those forecasts run. I think we've seen a little less than 200 billion downgraded year to date. Um, forecasts are for anywhere from 100 to 400 billion more. If you think about that versus a $1.3 trillion high yield market, it has the potential to be a big number and, and maybe maybe cause a little dislocation. And I think that's why the Fed was interested in in looking to pro- to provide some support there. Um, but at the same time, you know, from the from the high yield markets perspective, um, those names present some opportunity. It's um you know, one, they're, they're larger, more substantial businesses. They've got greater scale. They've got greater market share. Um, typically, they go into a downturn with a better balance sheet because they were, in fact, investment grade. Um, so they have more debt capacity to, as we've seen a lot of companies do, issue debt to provide liquidity to get through the, the downturn or to pledge assets or sell assets in order to, to manage their debt load. Um, so they tend to be better positioned. And then the other thing is from the investor standpoint, you know, the bond math changes. We talk about buying a, a high yield bond at par and, you know, the, the upside downside skew is really against you. But if if a, a fallen angel comes into the high yield market at 70 cents on the dollar, then all of a sudden maybe you've got 40 points of upside and 50 points of downside. And that's not nearly as negative a skew of outcomes. So, so I do think that's why that debt tends to get absorbed into the high yield market pretty well. You know, we saw that back in 2005 when Ford and GM got downgraded um, back, you know, before the financial crisis, that they were 
there was initially a little bit of indigestion, but ultimately they shook out and, and found a home and, and, you know, in the case of Ford, ultimately migrated back to investment grade. Um, so it, it does have the potential for some near-term dislocation, but it also has the potential to create some opportunity for high-yield investors. When you think about it, so we, we focus a lot so far on, on the U.S. high-yield markets. You, you, you guys cover a lot of different areas at Voya. What, if, you, if you said your specialty outside of the high-yield, I think we talked, you, you, you cover a little bit on, on emerging markets. Any want to give any color commentary on what's been happening in, in that segment of the market as well? Sure. Um, you know, it, it's emerging markets are arguably the place that should have the strongest growth over time. You look at, you look at you know, a rising middle class, you look at demographics. Um, so it, that, that's probably the, the most likely growth area over time. But in the near term, it's also the one probably least prepared to deal with the the coronavirus pandemic. I mean, you look at what's going on in Brazil or Mexico right now, for instance, and you know, the, the, the infection rate gets out of control. The, the medical systems and facilities aren't necessarily able to handle the, the caseload. But these are economies that in a lot of cases can't afford to shut down for an extended period, period of time, or maybe as long as, as developed markets have, have shut down. So, um, so again, I, I think the long-term story is intact there, but the near term can be very difficult, um, not only from the from an economic standpoint, but from the standpoint of you know the, the health angle of the population. Um, so it, it's an area that that we're we're still fairly cautious on right now, um, just given you know given those challenges, but that ultimately we we do believe will present uh, again some opportunity down the road. As growth is is you know somewhat depressed everywhere, and and investors and and the world starts looking for areas that can provide a little more growth. And, and any thoughts on you know one of the sort of questions is you know, they have a lot of them. There's sort of dollar denominated debt and local currency debt. Local currency, you know, if you're an investor in the U.S., you face you know what is happening in the Mexican currency or the Brazilian currency. But the dollar, then you you risk. Do they can they get dollars? And sort of there's a sort of interesting dichotomy of who issues debt in dollars, who issues debt in local currency. Um, any sort of commentary on that segment and and how you guys uh, would 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 bias yourselves? Yeah. So the the um, yeah the for an EM economy and government, issuing in local currency gives you a lot more flexibility, and, and issuing in dollars runs the risk that if your currency is devalued, generating those dollars to your point can be difficult. So we've seen the we've seen the Fed actually extend dollar swap lines, which they did in, in the financial crisis to the major central banks. They've even extended that in this downturn to some of the EM central banks to try and alleviate some of that pressure. But you're right. If you know the the ability of those company or those countries to repay that dollar debt ultimately depends on their ability to grow the economies over time and and you know arguably maybe strengthen their currency as well um, and, and the the current um, the current downturn provides an additional challenge there so again that's that's one of those things that until we believe the rate of growth can pick up again um, leaves us a little more cautious on that space. Very good. Any sort of final or last uh, last thoughts? Any closing thoughts? Things we haven't covered? You want to leave our listeners with uh, what what to think about you guys from Voya? Um, you know, I, I think the, the the other really interesting question is, is just around defaults 
and you know defaults always get a lot of, of press and discussion and in, in high yield but we're in this environment now where we you know forecasting is so difficult because again you don't know what the pace of reopening the pace of re-engagement uh what the medical situation positively or negatively is going to be um and, and so i think the the uncertainty is higher around you know what's the real risk of defaults and potential losses obviously that that requires a higher spread level to compensate investors um and, and probably means that the cycle plays out over a longer period of time Randy, we're going to have to leave it at that. Thank you so much for joining us on the program today. Thanks to our producer, Patty Hall, Dion Simpkins. Great show, everybody. Have a great Memorial Day weekend and see you next week. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit WisdomTree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.